0: Father, thank you. We gather in this room, we sing your praises, we're reminded of the fact that we really don't deserve to be able to come into your presence, not in any way, shape, or form, and yet we can. We can do that because of Jesus. We can do that because of his life, his death, his resurrection, the righteousness that he gives to those of us who follow him and put our faith in him. And so, God, we would ask that this morning, your Holy Spirit would use your word to teach us, to direct us, to challenge us, and, um, and God to make us more like Jesus, your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. 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 So, this morning we're going to begin looking at the letter that Jesus writes to the church of Thyatira or Thyatira. I'll pronounce it both ways. I don't know why I do that, but I do. Uh, To help us understand the situation that that particular church is going through, I want to jump ahead in the book of Revelation and read a section of Scripture to you. This is from Revelation chapter 17. I think you'll be able to follow along on the screen if you don't have your Bibles, but uh, we always encourage you to bring your Bibles just so you have a useful tool that you get familiar with. here's what we read in Revelation chapter 17. When one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit uh, into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was a In purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery Babylon the Great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. This calls for a mind with wisdom. Would you agree? yeah the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated and the angel said to me the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages and the ten horns that you saw they and the beast will hate the prostitute they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire for God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mine and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman saw, uh, excuse me, and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Everything clear so far. (laughs) We all get this. Uh, no, you read a passage like that and uh, one question at least uh, comes to my mind is what is going on? And another question is what does this mean? And another question is who is this woman? And to be fair, I need to tell you that this is one of those texts in Scripture where Christians throughout the centuries uh, and the ages have disagreed with, uh, in terms of who this woman's identity actually is. Uh, at various times in church history, uh, this woman has been identified Differently. For example, uh, during the period of the Reformation, when hostilities between Protestants and Catholics were particularly great, late 1500s, early 1600s, some Protestants said that this woman is the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, it's obvious, it's clear that's who this woman is, persecuting the church, the blood of the martyrs, and so. uh, Today, some Christians think that this woman stands for a, a kind of general. Uh, conglomeration of world religions things like buddhism hinduism maybe even the muslim religion thrown in there all of these faiths that that diametrically oppose the christian faith and they will come together in opposing and persecuting christians in the end times now personally i don't think either of those two uh, are correct and i want to tell you why okay okay Uh, it has to do with something called hermeneutics which, as we've said before, is the science of interpreting Scripture, interpreting the Bible. We've been learning a little about about this as we've gone along in this book of Revelation. One of the things we're learning is that when it comes to understanding the Bible, or for that matter, any ancient literature at all, you always start by asking this question. What did the writer want his original readers to understand by what he wrote? In other words, what did John want the seven churches in Asia to understand when they read this letter that he was writing to them? That is the key question. Now, uh, let me show you why this matters. You have to uh, play along with me a little bit. Uh, Here's kind of a contemporary example of what uh, uh, we just illustrate this point. Pretend for a minute that we've uh, launched 200 years into the future. Okay, all of us. We've been transported 200 years into the future. And we run across a a peculiar passage in a little book, and we want to understand what it means. But here's what it says it says, The white horse, which once ruled the earth, has had a mighty fall. The great horn, whose number was 10 and 8, let the reader understand, has departed. Five horns will follow, their number is five and one. Five horns will fall before a new horn will arise he will be the number three, perfect and strong. His horn will tear the flesh of wolves and devour the strength of Seahawks and eagles alike. Now, if we read a passage like that together, what sport might we be talking about? Anybody know? Anybody? Football, absolutely. The white horse, of course, is the Broncos horse right the great horn whose number was 10 and 8 is Peyton Manning of course let the reader understand Peyton Manning has departed there have been five horns since him or quarterbacks you might say add up the numbers on their jersey and that is five and one five horns will fall before a new horn will arise he will be the number three that is Drew Locke people Drew Locke Yeah. And Drew Locke will tear the flesh of the wolves. That happens to be the mascot of the chiefs the kansas city chiefs and devour the strength of seahawks self-explanatory and eagles that one too self-explanatory but here's the point you have to start with the context of the original readers that would be us our historical context and setting or those words would have little meaning 100 200 years from now without knowing our present historical context does that make sense So you see, whenever you read any kind of ancient literature, you have simply got to ask, what was the historical context of those original readers? What would they have understood this text to mean? And if you don't do that, if you don't look into the depth of the historical context, well, any text could mean practically anything. You make it up, who knows what it could mean? This is a fundamental principle of hermeneutics, of Bible interpretation. So what does Revelation 17:18 mean? Well, and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, put yourself back in first century Asia. Try to wear their sandals for a minute. What was the great city? The city that ruled over the kings of the earth that made slaves of the nation. And that included Israel, by the way. And they persecuted Jesus' followers. Who was it? You tell me. It was Rome, of course. That is by far the most likely identity of this woman that is mentioned in this passage. Look how she's described in verse 2. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. And the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. This is a metaphorical way of saying that the political rulers of these various peoples had betrayed their own people to enter into an unholy alliance with Rome. And of course that happened all the time everywhere you looked. Verse 4, it says the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet. These are, of course, the colors of royalty, the colors of power. Purple and scarlet was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. It's a way of talking about the wealth, the luxury of Rome that made her the envy of the entire world. Rome's splendor. But John is contrasting that splendor with Rome's moral bankruptcy. And he, he is, uh, wants us to see the discrepancy here. Rome holds this golden cup filled with abominable things. It says the filth of her adulteries. And those things that tempt us always look good to us, do they not? Beautiful colors, wonderful gold, jewels, precious stones. But if you give yourselves to those things, if you bow down to those things, if you worship those things, they will be the death of you. In verse 5, this woman's title was Babylon the Great. The mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Now, Of course, we know that Babylon was the nation back in the Old Testament that had taken uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, into captivity. In fact, we talk about that captivity as the Babylonian captivity. Uh, The people of God were persecuted. Uh, They were killed. They were destroyed. They were carted off into captivity. So it would be a natural reference to any nation that is oppressing the people of God to refer to them as Babylon. Uh, Anyone familiar with the Old Testament would have made that connection immediately when they read this text. Babylon was the oppressor of the people of God. Verse 6. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Well, this is frequently the case. Uh, One of Rome's emperors, in fact, one you've heard of, his name is Nero. uh, He set Rome ablaze in 64 AD, which would have been uh, a couple of decades probably before this letter that John was writing was being written. But back in 64 AD, uh, Nero wanted to do some building in in the city of Rome, but there were some slums in the way of where he wanted to build so what's the solution just set it on fire burn it all down everybody flees now you have a clean cleared land that you can build on and we're told by a Roman historian his name is Tacitus he's not a Christian uh, that Roman historian says that Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class called Christians this is familiar territory For these believers in these Asian churches, Christians being persecuted, even sometimes being killed in horrific ways. This is the woman that was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. And we could go on and on. But why does John want the seven churches to know all of this? What exactly is John driving at? Uh, Look again, verses 16 and 17. He says, the beast and the ten horns that you saw will hate the prostitute. So this beast that she rides is going to come back upon her and hate her. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. You see, the message is this that the very violence and greed that Rome has used to conquer and to subjugate other peoples will someday be turned around and it will devour her. She will be destroyed from the inside out by the very people that she has oppressed. That's the message. And the teaching here is pretty sober. It tells us that human systems... uh, that the human systems as unjust, as immoral, as corrupt, and as despotic as they are sometimes, those systems will not endure. God's word, God's plan will be fulfilled even by those who oppose him. God will even use his enemies to accomplish his purposes. That's what John is saying. John is telling these churches, this woman will be destroyed. Do you think that was encouraging news to them? Absolutely it was. You might wonder, why doesn't, John just, why doesn't John just come out and say this? Rome is going down. Rome is going to be destroyed. Uh, why all these bizarre images and language, adulterous kings, mother of prostitutes, golden cups? Well, consider this. How big a value is free speech in the Roman Empire? Yeah, it was of no value. No value. What One person had free speech, and that was the emperor. Um, and if John had said this stuff straight out, clearly, straight up, so everybody could understand it, this letter would have never made it off the island of Patmos. And what is more, if Christians were found anywhere in the Roman Empire reading a letter like this, a letter saying that Rome is going down, the emperor has no clothes, the emperor is going to fall, they would have been guilty of treason and very likely lost their life. So understand, John's book of Revelation was, and believe me, still is, highly subversive material. It says over and over and over that the one you think is Lord, Caesar, is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And Caesar, whoever's in power, whoever's on top, uh, that person is going down someday. And so, John uses this cryptic, apocalyptic imagery, mostly from the Old Testament, stuff that congregations with any Jews in them would readily understand, stuff that takes spiritual eyes to see and discern. He tells these struggling churches, listen, you are actually on the winning side. He tells them, Rome is not going to win this war. Jesus is going to win this war, his church will overcome. And, friends, this. Not only encourage them, but it should encourage us. I mean, look around the world. How's the world doing? You know, how's the world doing? Uh, It doesn't matter where you look. There's corruption, there's injustice, there's hatred, there's infighting, there's murder, there's war. How is the world doing? Well, the same as it's always done. Not well at all. Not really. And Jesus is going to come back and fix it. You see, you got to understand, Rome is whatever can seduce you into disobeying God. Rome is whatever can intimidate you into giving up the fight. And that's what it is. This thing of following Jesus is a fight. If you're doing it right, it's a fight. Uh, whatever can intimidate you into giving up the fight to follow Jesus, that is Rome. Rome. Uh, Rome is the power of sin and evil in the world expressed in various systems of power. And uh, very often those systems of power that are around us and in the world, they oppose truth. They oppose justice. They oppose righteousness. It's an understatement to say they oppose the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the church, of course, pays a price. It always has. It always will until Jesus returns. Sometimes the church is ridiculed. Sometimes it's mocked. Sometimes it's actually persecuted outright persecuted. And we are tempted to think when those things happen, you know, Rome is going to win. Rome is winning. Uh, I might as well just give up. What's the point of fighting and keep fighting and keep losing and keep losing? But John uses all of this, uh, his, his imagination, the art, the Old Testament imagery here that he can to say to these churches, and I would add to us that Rome may look like it's the mightiest power on earth. Uh, I know that's the way things appear much of the time. But the fact is, Rome is really a desperate, adulterous, gluttonous, street-walking whore. That's what he says. She's not going to win. Jesus is going to win. And you struggling little churches with not much power, not much money, you are on the winning side. So whatever the struggle is, however tough it may be, John is saying, just hold on, hold on, just be faithful. Just endure to the end. Don't give up. It will be worth it. He says, you will see Rome is going to fall. And it would be a great tragedy, he says, if you were to give up the struggle when we know, we know we are certain Jesus is going to win. And that, in essence, is John's message for the book of Revelation. There, we're done. No more Revelation. (laughs) But that really is John's message. And we're going to see aspects of it over and over and over because that's the good news of the gospel right there. Now, in the time that remains this morning, Uh, We're going to look at Jesus' letter to the church at Thyatira. Uh, Some in this church were just right there, this place that I'm describing. They were about to give up. In fact, they had begun to embrace some spiritual uh, compromises. And they were struggling to deal with Rome, their Rome. And so we go back to Revelation chapter 2, and I want to read the, the letter, Jesus' letter to this church at Thyatira. This is what he says. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you, You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. And so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and the minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on you what you have I'm sorry, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one, that person will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one, that person, the morning star. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the Word of God. Let's talk for a moment about what's going on in this city, Thyatira. We know from inscriptions, we know from archaeological research that Thyatira had an extraordinary number of what were essentially trade guilds. Uh, In this small city, uh, in Asia Minor, there were, there were more weavers, more dyers of cloth, more potters, more bronze workers than in almost all the other Asian cities. And uh, to work in one of those trade guilds or to work in one of those areas, uh, those skill sets, you had to belong to a trade guild. And these guilds had meetings and feasts that would normally take place in a pagan temple of worship. That was the, usually the largest building around with the largest meeting facilities and so And uh, so these pagan temples of worship and these meetings that would take place in them, they were associated with sacrifices being made to pagan gods, uh, pagan kinds of idolatry, even Caesar worship sometimes. And what's more, these feasts were very often the occasion for all kinds of drunkenness and sexual orgy or immorality. And here's the dilemma, of course, that any Jesus follower would have faced. If they wanted to participate in these guilds, they would be expected to go along with these practices and participate. But if they didn't participate in these guilds, it was like economic suicide. Uh, They could hardly make a living. Their products and their attempts to sell the things that they made would be boycotted. They would be essentially outlawed, if not formally, then informally. Uh, They had to choose, therefore, who were they going to serve? Were they going to serve Jesus and follow Jesus and trust Jesus? Or were they going to serve in the guild and do the things that guild people did? And Jesus says to the church, to this church, Thyatira, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, some of you know the story about Jezebel. Jezebel was a queen in the Old Testament. She was the wife of Ahab. Uh, she was, this is in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And uh, she was very evil. In fact, one of the things that she did is uh, she succeeded in getting the nation of Israel to be a worshiper of Baal, the god Baal, uh, almost to the exclusion of the worship of Yahweh. That's how bad the situation had become. And so Jesus is saying to this church now, Thyatira, he's saying, you tolerate Jezebel right there, in your midst. And he may be speaking of a specific woman and teacher in that church, or he may be speaking metaphorically, referring to uh, just a faction of teaching that was taking place in that church. It's difficult to know uh, which one it may be. Obviously, the the people who received the letter knew exactly who he was talking about, whether it was a specific woman, a specific person, or, or a movement within the church. But either way, there is a movement in the church to rationalize and to compromise the teaching they had received and the faith that they embraced. That's the movement. That's what's going on there in Thyatira. There is a woman saying, look, you can compromise. You can follow Jesus and be a member of the guild. You don't have to be such a fanatic about your faith. So if you work in a guild and they want you to say Caesar is Lord, big deal. Everybody says that. Just say it. If they want you to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, who cares? Go ahead. You know the idols aren't real. If they want you to participate participate in sexual orgies, no big deal. Again, everybody does this. Uh, If they want you to offer a little incense, make a little sacrifice, so what? Just pretend. Go along with the flow. You can follow Jesus and get along with the guild. You can follow Jesus and go along with Rome. That's essentially what this teacher was saying. And understand, there's an underlying premise to this teacher's teaching. Jezebel is saying, you know, you can't really, I mean, not really, we'd all like to, but you can't really trust God to care for you fully. So you had better take care of yourself. I mean, you can follow Jesus up to a point. That's a good thing to do. But when there's trouble, when there's pressure, when push comes to shove, when you need to make a living, when you are dealing with the powers that be, and they want you to do something that goes against your convictions, against the teachings of Jesus, well, you've just got to cut some corners. You've just got to go along. Because while Jesus is surely a really good guy, we all know he's a good guy and he's good to listen to as much as you can. But here's the thing, you can't really count on him. You can't trust him to put food on your table. You are going to have to look out for yourself or yourself is gonna get in trouble with the guild, with the powers that be. So you need to reserve the right to disobey Jesus if and when you need to. And what Jesus is saying to this church and to that teacher is this is serious, serious business. This is trouble. It's interesting in this letter how Jesus introduces himself to this church. I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but in each letter that Jesus writes to a church, he goes back to chapter 1, that vision of him, and he picks up some component piece of that vision, something that describes him, something that describes his character. And in this letter to Thyatira, he refers to himself as the son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire. That's intentional. That's intentional. In other words, Jesus sees through all of the rationalizations, he sees through all of the pretense, Jesus sees the truth about them, about us. And Jesus says, I have given her, Jezebel, time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. This is grace, friends. And Jesus gives so much grace, so much time. He's always calling us and encouraging us, just like he did them, just like he did Jezebel. Repent. Repent. This is going to lead to your death. This is grace Jesus is giving. He says, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. Now, just stop right there. I just say by way of passing, that too is grace. He's trying to get her to see where her teaching is going to lead. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Jesus says, this is so serious. This can kill you, spiritually speaking. And he says, I will strike her children dead. Those are the ones who follow in her teaching. And then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. And this is what happens in a church when the rationalization of sin becomes acceptable. It's okay. We're gonna do what we feel most comfortable doing as opposed to following what Jesus actually teaches. This leads to spiritual death, friends. And the reason this is all so dangerous is because we are so good at rationalizing. We can rationalize anything. Guaranteed, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, but you are practicing some sin, maybe it's hidden, maybe it's not, but you're you're practicing it, you're persisting in it, something you know you shouldn't do, something that displeases Jesus, something that puts distance between you and Jesus, guaranteed you have come up with some kind of rationalization for it. Guaranteed. If it's your speech, you say, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter how I say it. I can lie. I can exaggerate. I can use crass, crude, vulgar language. I can be critical. I can be hateful. I can be judgmental. My words don't matter. They're my words. And yet Jesus says, by your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. doesn't matter. If it's your time, you can say, my time is my time. I mean, I don't need to serve others. I'm tired. I'm busy. I've got better things to do. I don't need to gather with others to worship. Occasional worship is plenty of worship for me. That guy preaches so long anyway, one sermon lasts for a month. (laughs) I'll use my time to serve my agenda. You know, if it's your money, you say, what's mine is mine. I earned it. I'm not tithing, I'm not giving, I'm not paying my taxes, at least not honestly. Uh, I'll use my money for me to get the things I want. That's my number one priority, me. If it's sex where you compromise, you say, you know, I'll practice whatever sexual behavior I want to practice with whomever I want, whenever I want. I'll use porn whenever I like to. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's my body, it's my mind, it's my desires. I'll do what I want to do. I don't care what Jesus says. If it's substance, a substance that you abuse, you say, don't tell me what to, what to drink or what to smoke or what to swallow. Don't tell me, I'll do what I want to do. It feels good, it helps me relax, I like it. It doesn't hurt anybody. Friends, here's the question. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. If you say you follow Jesus, here's the question. Do you actually listen to Jesus? That's the question. Jesus said this. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So do you take the time to examine what Jesus says and why Jesus says it? You should. We all should. This is something we should be doing all the time, evaluating our thoughts and our practices with what the scriptures say, what Jesus said, what his apostles said. We should stop selling Jesus short to rationalize our behavior, to do what we want. When we do that, the Bible has a word for it, and it's called compromise. It's compromising. It's what the church at Thyatira was doing. And here's the deal. You see, the voice of Jezebel is not silent in our day any more than it was in John's. The evil one, the world, and the sin in us is always whispering to us do what you want. Think whatever you want. Do what's most comfortable for you to do. Behave the way that best suits your desires. Jesus cannot take care of you. Jesus cannot meet your needs. Jesus isn't really the way, the truth, the life. Jesus will steal your joy. Jesus will steal your your fun. And friends, I want to be as clear as I know how to be on this. That whole line of thinking is just crap. And I mean it. That leads to compromise. And here's what I fear I fear that some of us are making spiritual compromise that will mean disaster disaster in our relationships, disaster in our marriages, in our financial lives, in the development of our character, in our witness for Jesus, spiritual disaster and what it all boils down to is you know are we going to rationalize the things we do oh he won't care oh it doesn't matter oh I know that doesn't exactly comport with scripture but I just prefer this or are we going to face the truth the truth about what we think or what we do or don't think or don't do Jesus said about Jezebel I have given her time to repent of her immorality But she is unwilling. Wow. That's grace. That's mercy on Jesus' part. Jezebel doesn't care. Don't be like Jezebel. She's eventually cast on a bed of suffering and dies there with her children, with her followers. It's spiritual death that she's going to experience and does experience. And Jesus says there's only one solution for the compromises that we make. And that is the practice of something we'll just call daily repentance. This is so critically important. Daily repentance. Wouldn't it be great if we could get motivated somewhere in a message, right? And like today or this morning or something and say, you know what? Sin isn't great. I'm going to stop sinning. No more sin for me. I'm done with compromise. You know, if we could just say, I'm sick of sin and what it does. I'm sick of selfishness and greed and anger and the joylessness and the the sickness and the fear that it creates in me. So I'm done with sin. I am not going to sin anymore and then never sin again. Wouldn't that be great? But that's not going to happen. That's not the truth about us. We like sin. And even when we know it's sin, we keep going back to it. The writer of Proverbs said, like a dog that returns to his vomit. Anybody hungry? It's a horrible picture, isn't it? A dog returning to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly, who keeps going back to his or her sin. But that's us. That's not them out there. That's us in here. You see, I find in me what Paul found in himself. He said, for I do not understand my own actions. (laughs) For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. (sighs) I understand, Paul. I find that principle at work in me. And this side of heaven, the really ugly, really hard truth is none of us are any better than Paul. We all sin and unfortunately we will continue to sin until Jesus returns or we go to be with him. But here's the thing, while that might be true, it is also true that I have Jesus. I have Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one, Paul says, who delivers us from this dilemma. Jesus forgives me. In him, I am a new creature I have a new heart, a spiritually alive heart. And Jesus actually creates in me his spirit. His word creates in me a desire to grow spiritually, a desire to listen to the truth about me and the truth about God and the truth about this world that I live in. And that also creates a desire in me to become more like Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. That's good news, friends. (laughs) It's terrible when you gotta tell people they're supposed to say that. Let me tell you what that means. That means no hiding. What's the point? That means no making excuses for my behavior. That means repenting when it becomes clear that my behavior is hindering my spiritual growth. My behavior is dishonoring Jesus. My behavior is just plain self-serving or sinful. And so the question for all of us is, you know, do we have the courage to say no more compromises? I will follow Jesus without reservation. And, of course, what I'm saying that means is it's saying I'll repent where repentance is needed. And, of course, I ask Jesus for help because I can do literally none of this on my own, by myself, without his work happening in me. Now, here's the thing. That's what discipleship is. It's, it's developing this routine of daily repentance, uh, knowing myself better and better for who I really am, knowing him better and better for who he really is, and bringing the two together. And the way you do that is through daily repentance. Repentance is a changing of your mind, looking at sin or this thing that you enjoy doing that dishonors Jesus and seeing it differently, so much differently that you actually change your behavior. Now, once again, I, the, the sad, ugly truth is, you know, you won't be able to do that once and for all and be done with all sin in your life. That's why daily is a key word here. Daily, daily repentance. Now, if if that's your attitude, if that's where you find yourself saying yes to Jesus, I want to live that kind of life, Jesus, I need you. I want you change my heart, change me, uh, make me a daily repenter. If that's your attitude, then look at the promise that Jesus makes to you. This is verse 26, 27, and 28 says to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end that's daily repentance I will give authority over the nations what you're gonna do what yeah I will give authority over the nations that one that person will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery he's talking about evil the practices of evil in these world systems they will be dashed broken like a pottery vessel This is all Old Testament uh, language and Old Testament reference to Psalm 2 and to Isaiah 30 and Jeremiah 19. It's a picture of God's justice being done on the nations where the nations are evil, where they practice evil. We will get to join Jesus in that whole process of bringing righteousness, goodness, justice against evil. He says, just as I have received authority from my father... I will also give that one the morning star. Imagine the encouragement that this would bring to these little Asian churches who are struggling every day with the persecuting pressure of the authority of Rome. This had to be almost shocking to them to hear this. Jesus says, the day will come when you will judge with me and judge rightly, not randomly. The day will come when you will have authority over Rome. The whole present situation will be exactly turned upside down. That day is coming, says Jesus. And then he says, not just that, but I will also give that one, that person, the morning star. And he's, he's not talking about a newspaper or something. Uh, he, later in Revelation, this image is used again in Revelation 22. Jesus says this, I, Jesus have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. In other words, he's saying, remember, remember who I am. I'm the king. I'm the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. That's who Jesus is, the bright morning star. This is Jesus in this text that we're reading, promising to give himself to you and to me. And, uh, That's one of the greatest promises ever made in all of Scripture. I don't know if you have felt this before. I have. You know, the night is dark. And the night is cold. And the night is scary. And when you're in the midst of the night, a dark place that oftentimes looks really, really hopeless, and we wonder in the night, can we make it through this? Will we survive? And all of the evidence stacks up to the answer, no. It's not looking good. There's a scene in one of my favorite movies. It's one the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's the Two Towers thing remember the Riders of Rohan? Anybody care about this at all? I know some of you hate, you don't want to hear this, but some of you do, so tough. <laughs> but there's this scene where all the Riders of Rohan, are, or many of them, are holed up in Helm's Deep, and they fought, and they fought. The elves came to fight with them, and they fought, and they fought, and, and they've lost. They've pulled back further and further into this keep that they're in, and there's now only one door separating them from the the orcs that are out there, you know. And if you know nothing about Lord of the Rings, you think I'm speaking in tongues right now. But but it's the night and it is dark and it is utterly hopeless. There's only a few of them left to fight and they decide they're gonna mount their horses and ride out into the tens of thousands of orcs that are out there, these creatures fighting them and they're going to fight to the death and it's almost certainly going to be their death and they do they ride out it's a stupid thing they're going to die but when they get out there they look up and it's to the east and there's light dawning and there's the morning star in the Lord of the Rings, if you know anything about it, Gandalf is frequently a, the individual that represents Jesus. And Gandalf is there. And he's brought thousands and thousands of more riders of the Rohan. And they come to the rescue. It's the morning star. You see it at dawn, just at dawn. And when you see it, it tells you definitively that the sun is coming and that you have made it. Because Jesus is the morning star. And Jesus is saying here, I'm going to give you the morning star. I'm going to give you myself. And friends, that is the thing that you and I need more than anything else, an intimate, abiding, loving relationship with Jesus. You see, Jesus knows us in the dark, all of the truths about us, all of the secret things, and he loves us in spite of our sin. And Jesus forgives us and he promises that he will remake us completely one day. And this is why Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And this Jesus will give us, he says, himself if we just hold on, if we just don't compromise with sin. Do you understand that sin lies to you? Do you like being lied to? Do you understand that sin cheats you? It always does. Do you understand that sin deceives you, that sin enslaves you and holds you in bondage to itself? It always gives you what is less than the best, always. And yet we compromise ourselves for sin all the time in our homes, in our private lives, in in the marketplace, in our relationships, in our relationship even with Jesus. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote about, and every time I read this, I read it before, it just breaks me up because it describes me. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum. You have the picture? A puddle, mud, muddy street. A child sitting in the middle of the, pub making, making in the puddle making mud pies. That's the picture. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus says to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, that means daily repentance. Daily repentance. I will also give that one the morning star. In other words, I will give him myself. I'll take him to the beach. I'll show him a holiday at sea instead of letting him make mud pies in a puddle in a slum. You'll have me, he says, for all eternity. You'll have me. And I would just ask you, what more do you need? What is better than that? What more could you possibly want? And this is the offer that Jesus is making to the church there, Thyatira, And it's the same offer he makes to us. The issue for them, spiritual compromise. An issue for us, spiritual compromise. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this letter, both encouraging and a letter of warning. We recognize, God, that the voice of Jezebel, as it was speaking In the Old Testament, it spoke to these seven churches there in Asia, and it speaks still today. God, deliver us from listening to the words of Jezebel. Deliver us from compromise, God. Give us hearts and minds and desires that daily want to open ourselves up to the truth of your word and your teaching and be exposed to that truth so that we can repent of our sin take us through this daily practice of repentance to deeper places of trust and faith and love in you, Jesus. For we ask this in your name, amen.